Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome. I am delighted um, to get to standing room only. Uh, that, that is fantastic. My name is uh, Dr. Karen Eifler, and together with Father Charlie Gordon, we co-direct the Garaventus Center for Catholic Intellectual Life and American Culture, who are your hosts for this evening. Uh, we always start with just a couple bits of housekeeping. If you are a K-12 teacher uh, and you are here tonight, um, we have the ability to give you free PDUs. Teachers know what that means and how great that is. And all you have to do is sign up uh, on, there's a, there's a well-marked, cleverly labeled PDU sign-up sheet in the back, and you can sign that uh, on your way out, and those will be in the mail to you tomorrow. Um, if you are a student here as part of a course, the sign-ups for that will be available after KA's Colorado, uh, KA Colorado's talk is completed. And if you think that this uh, talk sounds really cool and you would like to find out what else are those Garavena Center people doing, we have uh, some copies of our calendar for the year in the back, and we also have a sign-up sheet uh, that... Uh, allows you to be part of our electronic mail list and, and keep on top of what's happening because we're always adding things to our schedule. Next up is um, a wine and cheese reception and a pre-play panel in front of this Saturday's production of Good Kids by our, our theater department. And uh, the doors for that will open at 645. It's complimentary for all ticket holders. And we have three uh, really interesting folks lined up to help illuminate some uh, themes that, that help you see a different show than you would otherwise. And after that, it's Zombies and Brains, reading the Bible in apocalyptic times. And that's coming up. We always like to do a zombie-oriented activity uh, near Halloween, and that's coming up October 28th. So you don't want to miss cool stuff like that. Um, does anyone know what a Mobius strip is? Okay. It looks kind of like this. This isn't a great example. Um, but what is cool about it is that even though you know it was constructed by human hands, you can't really tell. It blows all the rules of one and two and three dimensions. You can't really tell where one surface starts and another surface uh, enters. And I think that you'll find that tonight's presenter is sort of a human Mobius strip. It's not merely that he's packed a lot of achievement into his life, which he has, it's not merely that he's traveled all over the world at the invitation of scientific agencies and museums to create works of art and to lend his voice uh, to the others who study the earth and the impact of human activity on climate change, which he has, and that he speaks out on behalf of the interconnected lives of all forms of being on the planet. He has. Is K.A. Colorado a sculptor? Check. Is he a painter? Check. Is he an environmental scientist? Check. Is he a filmmaker? Check. And we're actually going to see the debut, the world premiere of his most recent uh, film as part of our um, activity tonight. Is he the voice of conscience with 30 years worth of calling us to be mindful of the need to care for our, our common home? Check and check. Each of these are tremendous accomplishments, well worthy of our attention. Why don't you scoot in? I think you can find your way around the room. We won't, we won't embarrass you in any way. What made us stop and take note of KA Colorado is that like a Mobius strip, it's virtually impossible to tell where his artistic endeavors stop 
and his prophetic communication of the science of climate change begins. His art incorporates the very words of poets and graphs and reports from scientists of every discipline, as well as elements from the earth itself. You can see evidence of his artistry, his theological understanding that all of earth is interconnected, and his science on display in the three large-scale paintings from his Ice Core series that he um, gifted to the university uh, last spring and are now on display in the main floor of Clark Library. Those were the images that were cycling through as you were trickling in. And it's so fitting that on today, October 4th, when the Catholic Church celebrates the feast of St. Francis of Assisi, who reverenced all creation as a gift from God that was ours to cherish and take care of, that we welcome internationally renowned artists and climate change ed educator K.A. Colorado of Vancouver, B.C., who will share his reflections on the moral implications of deep cold and polar ice on the climate change debate. Please join me in welcoming K.A. Colorado. Uh, thank you very much. Um, I first want to thank the university for offering me this opportunity to come and speak about something that's dear and uh, very important to everything that I've done in the last 25, 30 years. Um, there's a few people here um, who are old friends of mine, and I want to also acknowledge their support and help and, and patience with dealing with all of my foibles and uh, mistakes and uh, attempts to try to portray what I've done. Um, uh, beginning this, this lecture, um, this morning I had a chance to go to the chapel here. And this university has become uh, a really critical uh, issue for me, uh, morally, uh, in, in, the, in the terms of, in the, in the fact that I've received so much attention and uh, support, but also the fact that there's this energy here and the fact that all of you bring a special um, existence and, and uh, resonance to this place. Uh, I think that in looking at the landscape here, uh, the position of the university at, on, on the bluff here overlooking the city um, is also um, a part of feng shui that really uh, is inspirational and continues to add to all of your academic um, ability to, to do the things you have to do. Um, in, in, in experiencing all of uh, the students here, uh, it feels like it wasn't very long ago that I was sitting in the seats doing the same thing that all of you are doing. And um, uh, it has been a long progression for me to try to understand and focus on the things that really um, are meaningful to me and relate those into some kind of moral uh, discipline for myself. One of those things was the physical landscape of the earth. Uh, and my involvement with art really supports um, that kind of expression. And I have attempted through the help of a lot of my friends here uh, who, who have given me uh, help on understanding and getting to these kind of locations, uh, what they mean to all of us. Um, this lecture is about the common home, our common home. Um, and I'm going to 
I'm going to talk about the encyclical from the Pope that I think is very, very critical and, and important to this issue. But before I begin that, um, this morning I had a chance to stop at the chapel, and there's these magnificent carvings, which I, I'm sure all of you have seen on the door. And, um, and looking at those, I realized what the sculptor must have felt when he was doing this, and his, his commitment and track uh, to trying to uh, portray something that all of you would benefit from. Because the doors represent an opening to a spiritual uh, place. And that kind of uh, expression is something that all of us in individual um, ways also need to, to uh, open. Uh, while I was there, I had a chance to look at the book uh, that people jot down uh, things in. And one of the captions that really caught my eye was someone who had written down in very tiny letters, um, looking for a friend. And it, it, it was, it was uh, for me, very, very um, emotional because whoever that person was, uh, the fact that this is our common home and we all have to live on this kind of plane um, also shows that there are people who do not make those contacts and, and are not able to um, link easily. And I think all of us owe uh, a great um, effort to trying to reach out to people like that. And I was one of those people myself a long time ago. Um, I'm not a verbal person, uh, and I've said this to a few people here already, um, but I'm, I, I work with uh, visual content, and my, my expressions are always on the visual level. Uh, but I've had the opportunity to cross over some time ago and work with scientists. So I have just come back from the Yukon, uh, and I had a, an extreme experience, but was able to do some work with a few uh, scientists, geologists, from different universities uh, um, with a art, um, uh, art uh, specific design on the landscape. And I want to show those um, images to you if I can right now. <clears throat> uh, the area that I went to in the Yukon was called uh, the Kulani uh, National, uh, National Forest. And the Kulani is the highest range of mountains in the Northwest. And um, the reason that we were there is because the uh, climate change has affected the melt so much so that the valley is being adjusted um, uh, at a very quickly pace. Um, these are these are installations that I that I had taken with me. They're tennis balls with um, pins in them, and I located them into the earth. And what I'm attempting to do with these with these is I'm trying to place. Uh, the idea of um, border and um, boundary with national, uh, with uh, geologic uh, features, but they also represent the current themes on borders with uh, culture now. And I think that um, it's kind of important to lock the two of those things together in an art form, which is why I did these pieces. Uh, the glacier impact to this area which is happening very quickly, is um, locking up the water glacier melt into different regions and, and um, blocking other lakes. And so what we're looking at in this particular image is one of the big important lakes called Slim's Lake that has been totally blocked off. And because of that, the, um, the geologic uh, formation of that particular area has been changed. 
Um, the, uh, my chance to do this project really has uh, been benefited because, for me, it's been benefited because I'm able now to talk about working with geologists on site, on location with these formations. And evidently, uh, this kind of thing hasn't been done before. Uh, the ability to work with art uh, and, and, and site locations with geologic features um, is one way of um, bringing to some kind of um, dimension what the landscape looks like for the average person. So by having the balls in those locations and having them adjust to the landscape forms, um, they, there's a big interest now in having these um, uh, published now in Scientific Journal. Uh, in this location, uh, this is maybe six, seven thousand feet in the sky, in the in the air, uh, and this uh, this location right now is actually um, a, a glacier, and the glacier has ripped down through the mountains, and so there's rubble that has fallen on top of the surface of the glacier, and uh, formed a, a regular a regular terrain. Uh, this uh, this uh, this uh, specific uh, image is of a glacier that's beginning to crack. And the reason why this was so exceptional was the fact that we were at this location, which these normal kind of features don't happen for hundreds of years. And uh, this happened within a matter of four or five days. So this was really an event that is um, um, symptomatic of the climate change effects in geologic areas. Uh, while I was there, um, I've been telling a story about uh, grizzly bear. Which, uh, which I think, I hope you find some kind of humor from, um, because I met my mortality there. But um, this is the helicopter that dropped me off in this particular location. And I was by myself, but um, the ground there that you see is actually a glacier that's actually moving, uh, cracking, splitting, um, and melting. And um, I was dropped off to spend two hours at this particular location uh, when the helicopter took off. Um, at, at that time, um, I had lunch, and I had placed these uh, devices on the ground and was beginning to uh, take a break when I saw the footprints on the, on the ground. And um, uh, probably maybe, I don't know, 30, 40 yards away, I heard these bellowing noises coming up. And it turned out to be grizzly bear. And so um, the pilot, uh, had, which had taken off, uh, after he had left, uh, realized it might be dangerous. And he flipped back and came back and picked me up. And so uh, but I was able to capture these photos in this, this particular one. Um, now, um, after I left this particular location, I went to a place called uh, Catlin um, Lake. And it's a lake that is frozen uh, and has been frozen since recorded time, uh, human recorded time. And uh, I was there to, first of all, check out the locations because I'm supposed to have gone there uh, in four or five months to do another project on the frozen lake, the frozen uh, surface of the lake. And because of the climate change, the lake is not freezing anymore. and hasn't frozen for two years now. Um, that's all the pictures. Okay, that's it. So anyway, uh, that was that was the recent trip I took. The reason I wanted to show these is because um, knowing I was going to come here and give a presentation on climate, I really thought that this was uh, something immediate that I had seen. This is not the first time I've actually done this kind of thing. Uh, I've been very, very fortunate to have gone with other ge geologic uh, groups to different locations when something actually was uh, happening in extreme uh, uh, situations. 
one of the one of the situations that we saw recently, uh, four or five years ago, was a, um, a mountain that slid off in Canada, which was called Pemberton. And Pemberton is above the Whistler Ski Resort area. And Pemberton, which normally is a beautiful valley, uh, is impacted quite a lot because of the uh, melt situation. And the mountain in that area is volcanic, uh, over over 10,000 years, but it's a vertical volcanic structure. And the melt from the glacier actually lubricated the mountain and blew the whole thing out, uh, and blew out uh, 17 miles of forest in about a minute and a half. So we were happy, we happened to be there to see this, and it was a very unusual area, uh, time to see that. Um, the, the thing I'm going to talk about tonight is, first of all, I'd like to talk about how I myself as an artist have come to this place doing the work I do now. Uh, uh, I'm, a, I'm a sculptor, basically, and I'm a visual uh, sculptor, and I work with removing large amounts of material that's not exactly a part of the sculpture. And the focus, my focus, is not about one particular part of the sculpture, it's about everything that's not there. And um, my attitude about this really has affected how I approach my work in, in those kind of ways. Uh, having worked in, in, in areas uh, with some of my friends here uh, that were relatively extreme with ice and snow, we've seen slow, slow uh, progression of uh, climate change in some areas in Europe, in Switzerland, and, uh, and Europe. And I've worked in Russia quite a bit and also had experience of working with sculptures that mimic um, the content of the ice uh, melt in, in uh, the sculpture itself. When I say the ice sculpture, uh, one of the things we've done is we've been able to um, build form, large form, that leverages out into space and is held by the, the tensile strength of the, of the snow. And as things have gotten progressively cold, uh, warmer in, in different areas, that capacity to hold leveraged mass out into areas is not there anymore. And I kept a record of this for, for quite a long time, and that record then was forwarded to a few scientists who I work with now, who I'm lucky enough to work with now. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, in in, in, in uh, Buenos Aires, which is one of the cities I traveled to, a few years ago, I was doing a project in Antarctica, and I had gone down through uh, Buenos Aires to um, travel down there to um, get materials to take to Antarctica. And while I was there, one of my great friends who's a lawyer and I got on a bus in Buenos Aires, and um, as we got on the bus, there were people pounding on the side of the, the bus, making a lot of noise, rocking the bus back and forth, and we thought it was a soccer game. And it turned out that the, um, the Archbishop of Buenos Aires was on the bus in the back. And I walked in and everybody said, uh, described him who he was and he and I nodded each other and looked at each other. And I was struck by the, the intensity of his vision, of his, of his, uh, of his eyes. Uh, that person later became uh, Pope Francis. And uh, Pope Francis has been an extreme guiding light in my life. Um, currently it's, it's uh, it's someone who I was waiting to come to the format, to the stage, to be able to address the, the issues of climate change, poverty, and how those things are all connected that we all are now are facing. Um, um, excuse me. 
uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about today was the fact that art can be used as an archival instrument. Uh, and now it's actually being inst instigated in, in Germany right now with the geoscience group uh, in Germany who actually look at some of the paintings and sculptures from the last uh, five, six hundred years as archival information for uh, addressing climate change, understanding climate change. Uh, so little by little, the crossover between science and, and uh, art uh, it seems to be growing uh, more and more uh, uh, in my experience. I think that uh, for you, uh, for me to bring the reality of what I've seen and what that kind of uh, expression has been uh, is important because some of you uh, are far removed from places that are extreme. And some of you, um, you know, would have a have a, a, a length of time before you can get to those places. And I've seen those, but also the places I've seen are not exactly the same as they were 20, 30 years ago. And I think with these kinds of um, uh, beginnings of the real changes happening, your experience and your children's experience is going to be quite different than, than what we're looking at today. Um, we live in a relatively... A great place, the Pacific Northwest, and this kind of um, belt that goes across the world is one of the better places to be. But in other places, um, there is extreme um, impacts to water and to different aspects. One of my friends here, who I'd like to mention, uh, is involved with uh, Mercy Corps Water Resources Worldwide, and has done a lot of work in Africa and other places. More. Uh, Mort was also instrumental in helping me do the film that I'm going to present tonight, so I wanted to talk to you about that a little bit. Um, um, there are, there's, uh, this, this, this uh, conversation about climate is extremely broad and covers so much area that it's not easy for me to exactly tell you all the things easily that I'd like to say. However, I'm hoping there's an answer and question period after this so we can actually, um, I can tell you some of the things that you may want to hear um, what my reaction would be for that. Um, but the film itself uh, was done with a NOAA uh, representative. I am the artisan representative for NOAA uh, in Washington, D.C. And I do a lot of their uh, work on um, marine sanctuaries and uh, uh, underwater things. And this film is about carbon and water. The Pope uh, expressed uh, in his encyclical, uh, great um, comments about how we adjust to carbon. And the film basically is about how our experience and interaction with carbon is, except it's an art film. So what you're going to look at is kind of an artistic expression of what carbon is. Carbon is in all of us. Carbon is in the DNA, carbon is in the, the environment, carbon is in the air, and it's part of our experience. Carbon also is invisible, but we're all connected in one way or another. And one of the one of the uh, products of carbon is CO2, which of course is one of the big impacts to climate now. Um, the other thing I should say is I have some paintings here, which I think some of you have seen at the library, uh, and those represent ice cores. And I'm known for doing ice cores now for some time. Um, when I first began doing work with um, climate issues, um, I was challenged and, and, in a lot of different kind of ways. Uh, I, the work was, was taken down when I, when I put shows up. 
Uh, I have people threaten me. I've had uh, I have had people come to the studio and tell me that I'm part of a radical group of individuals. Um, this has been going on for maybe uh, last 20 years. It's only been the last five or six years has changed. And of course now there's a there's a there's a big uh, at least a big focus now on what this might be to all of us. Uh, but from my experience and from what I've seen over these years, over 30 years, um, this is uh, very relevant to what we have to address now. Um, uh, I'd like to show the film, I think, uh, if we can do that. Thank you, thank you so much. Um, I, I wanted to, to close by saying a couple things. Um, before I left um, the Yukon, uh, I ran into um, a Klingit Indian, uh, First Nations person, and he um, gave me this little uh, note that I wrote down, and I wanted to read it now because it ties in with what the Pope has also said. <clears throat> Please respect our land and water, and the lives that depend on it. It is the land from which we came that connects all life and our land and our lifeblood. Our land looks after us, and we after our land. Anything that happens to Klingit land affects our culture. And this, I think, is probably uh, um, what the Pope was some, doing a summation of in his, uh, his writings. Uh, I think the encyclical is really critical for any um, logic-thinking person now to use as a guideline about climate and also about poverty and about the situation we're facing right now. Um, in ending all of this, um, a lot of this is, is going to be left up to you. Uh, your future is going to change, and I think that you are capable of also adapting very well. But I think the real issue is going to be how we morally adjust to all of this, how we treat each other. Uh, how we how we get through the period we're in right now, which is political chaos here in this country, uh, and things that really are uh, coming paramount that we have never seen before in my generation. Uh, I also know that you have the capacity and the energy and the commitment. Uh, and of course, I'm talking to an audience here who probably would embrace most of the things here we're talking about. My problem is that I also have to bridge over into people who will not listen to this and will not believe these kind of things and try to at least get them to open up and at least consider. Uh, so I hope, you, I hope you've enjoyed this. I thank you so much for, for coming, uh, and I appreciate everybody who's given me support now. Thank you. that he'd be happy to take a couple of questions and engage in dialogue, so please uh, feel free to raise your hand and, um, and you just call away. Okay. What would you say is the single greatest moral issue that's associated with global change and global warming? Well, I, I think probably the, the thing that I would, I would focus on right now is uh, poverty. 
because as a matter of fact, in fact, the, 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 the Pope, uh, the Archbishop in Buenos Aires used to be called uh, the Archbishop of the slums. And I think that he was a voice for people like that. And unfortunately, in, in, in our realm of this world, we, we have a lot of privilege, but there's enormous amounts that are, don't have that privilege. As a matter of fact, when I've driven across the states in, in, in travel, I've gone to little places that are off the map or isolated, and there really are people suffering quite a lot. And I think the post message is the fact that if we take care of our common home, if we address what climate is to all of us as a common good, as one of the rights that we have in our lifetime to have good climate, uh, I think it, it reflects onto people who don't have that opportunity and don't have that voice and, 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 and kind of help themselves. Thank you. Yes. Um, I guess this is a college, like for college students, what, what is probably, what do you think is the best way for people like us to start? Beginning, like beginning that dialogue and talking about climate change in the public sphere? Well, it's beginning to happen now. Uh, unfortunately, it's awful late. And when I first started this, this, this focus that I was on years ago, maybe 30, 40 years ago, I mean, it was kind of a joke. But I was able to see things then at that point. I think that also there is this ability to um, be able to understand the things you're looking at intuitively. But some people have to come to it through a different method which is education, which is uh, experience, those kind of things. And as much as we can possibly um, share that experience and, and share that information, I think it's really important. Yes. Along with the moral adjustments that we'll have to make in the future, do you think that climate change will be something that we learn to live with and adapt with? Or is it something that... This was the question I didn't want to... <laughs> nobody would ask. <laughs> uh, from, from the, there's two different uh, uh, groups of information that I've received from people I've worked with before. One is we're past the tipping point. We're way past that. The, and we have to adapt in some kind of way. The other thing is that the real threat to climate change is not the things that we're talking about now. The real threat is the oceans because the oceans are beginning to slow down because of the, the climate impact. And we're getting dead areas in the ocean, we're getting dead things. And most of the food, you know, like the, like the lady said in the, in the film, most of the food that we need comes from the oceans, the, the large part of that. Uh, so it is a very dire kind of thing. We're going to have to adjust, and it's going to be warmer. Unfortunately for you, uh, living in this area, and, and the band around around the world, and and, and, and Russia, and this kind of this kind of uh, band in this this area, we're not going to be impacted as much as people in in, in, in places I've come from, uh, in, in 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 Middle East, in um, subtropic areas, in the Caribbean, that kind of thing. It's going to be a different situation. But here, I think that the ability to uh, address that kind of change. And what it's going to take to bridge that is going to have to come from places like this. So, also, I should say something else. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of um, response to China and what China is doing and, and the impact of that. But actually, from what I've experienced and what I've been told, uh, China's moving very quickly to try to at least um, come to some grips with this. And I don't know if if that's the answer. I don't know if that's going to come from that. But the answer may come from places that are not here. So, you know, it, it's, uh, this is a different time that we're in right now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
Yes. Ken, how would you suggest that <clears throat> we as uh, small community members, how we would, one, evangelize uh, to, to make sure that we're doing our part in spreading the word that, that other people, educating other people who otherwise might not be educated, and what kinds of activities in terms of our personal lives should we be involved in in order not, not to take advantage of, of the environment and the, i.e. the climate that the, we're living in. In the encyclical, the Pope Francis uh, speaks about the rapidity of society. And he talks about the fact that we move faster and faster, quicker and quicker, digitally and all kinds of other kinds of ways, and transportation and everything else. And when we are moving this quick, the ability to contemplate and to consider and to take the time out to really um, understand how we're interacting with our environment is not very easy. So if you're asking me the question, I, I would say, first of all, I think really think about how you can slow your lives down and really think about things that are really um, intuitive and, and, and very linked to how we're dealing with each other. Uh, the, I, I have a problem myself with how much we can do because obviously we can, we can quit eating uh, some foods, we can, we can not use styrofoam cups and things like that. But everything that's packaged, everything that's packaged, and automobiles and airplanes are filled with styrofoam. I mean, it's, it's exponential. And there's also an industry that's, that's very involved with that. One of the things the Pope talks about in this, and it's a, it's a very dangerous thing right now, but he talks about the excess of capitalism. He talks about how it's a money-driven society, uh, here and other places, and the fact that we've lost our compass on what really is relevant to us and how we need these things to survive. And so um, addressing that kind of thing, we're talking about a revolution, and, and, that's a, that's a, that's a, and I think we're beginning to see some of these kinds of things upheavals in, in this country right now. I mean, is, it, is, it, you know, is the money thing more important than other things that, that are, you know, our, our morality? So I think uh, in terms of individuals, I think everyone has to find their own moral compass. And, and that compass is different for a lot of people. I mean, there's people on the streets here that, you know, have to rob and do whatever they do. But I think everyone, even those people that are doing the wrong things, have some kind of compass that they're trying to live up to. And it's our duty to sort of make them understand the value of a better compass, of a better, of a better reality. So. Have you found uh, that getting at this through art, have, have people been more receptive to contemplating these questions of climate change sort of sneaking in through art versus reading statistics and scientific surveys and sort of barrage of facts? That's what I, that's what I was thinking of a long, long time ago because I, I realized you can't have an argument about these things. Uh, some people are really threatened by the fact that they have to consider climate change. Uh, and I don't blame them. I mean, some people, you know, if you consider, you know, how do you do without a car? How do you do without a home? How do you do with things that are really essential? So when someone comes and says we have to adjust, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a very threatening thing for them. And I understand this. My thing in my, in my background, in my career, is to try to address these kinds in a visual way, a different kind of way. So at least the consideration of them coming to where they stand on these issues is clear for them. 
So using the art as I do, uh, I'm not trying to blast them with... And by the way, I, I, I've avoided for a long time taking a stand on whether this is right or wrong because I thought that I have to sort of not take, take a position as an artist. I just need to present how it is. I think that the artist, the, the, the reasonable artist, uh, mirrors the society he's in. And I think that we now are going through something right now. There's a lot of artists out there, but very few artists are doing things that really have content, or at least social content. And in terms of mirroring a culture, I think that's what an artist is supposed to do. We've had, we have vulgar, vulgarity, we have, we have violence, we have all kinds of things expressed in art. And I don't think that really is mirroring exactly what the culture is. I think it's more of a message that's used to, to, uh, to keep people um, uh, busy and, and, and occupied. So I think myself, I think the, the, the fact that it's trying to find how to express what the real issues are in our society right now is that. I also think that climate change is ultimately the most important issue there is right now. I really believe this. I think there are military things that are uh, um, leveraged on that, that thing. I think there's food things that are going to be leveraged on that thing. I think water very soon will really um, overshadow uh, climate itself and become even more important. And water, we, water is a necessity we all have to have, and it is, it is at jeopardy right now. <laughs> I also think it's a right. It's a human right for everyone to have water. So those are those kind of issues. And and you know I'm not I'm not a very uh, I'm not a very good spokesman for for myself being a Catholic, but I find myself at this point in my life falling back into things I've learned in that that makes so much more sense now now that I have that distance and can see that. So um, like I said, I I don't want to represent myself as a as a religious person. I also don't want to paraphrase the Pope's encyclical's words. I want you to read them. I'm hoping that there's enough out of this that you'll at least pick it up, because I think that when you pick it up, you won't be able to put it down. It is incredible. Um, so. Uh, one, one more question, maybe in the back there? Yes. Is there a specific event or moment that drew you to working with climate in your life, or was it a gradual progression? It began from my father. Uh, and that's a that's a long story. My father and my uncle were both artists, and they were twins. So for a long time, I couldn't tell which one was which. So, <laughs> uh, and, and we also have models in our house, and, uh, and and I didn't know that they weren't part of the family. It, it was some some years before I figured out they weren't. Um, so I had this as a background, but I was always I was always going to look at different things. My father was always angry at me because I'm always going to new places, and it's been that way all my life. In terms of climate, uh, I lived in Los Angeles for a little while, and I happened to work in Griffith Park in the mountains in a zoo a long time ago. Uh, and working in the zoo at nighttime, uh, I was able to see the change in um, environmental conditions in, in the mountain area, in the Griffith Park area, because of uh, homes being built and traffic happening and smog and everything else. And I, you know, for me, it was a really impact early on about those kind of things. So I had that. Uh, my uncle, I should also mention, my uncle was a, a great character. He was, a, he was outrageous. Uh, but my uncle also, um, who worked in that zoo, who also got me that job working in the zoo, he also would um, make, take little trees out on the weekend in his truck at 6 o'clock in the morning and plant them all around the city. 
And now when I go back to visit those places, the trees are big and all that kind of thing. So I, and I had that with him for a little bit. But he also packed bags for people that he knew that didn't have enough food. I, I, this, is, this is the truth. And I was embarrassed because I thought, you know, why are we going to these places? And he would pack these little lunch things and he'd drop them off in people's houses and just drive on. And my uncle was not a, he wasn't a, you know, a special kind of person. He was a character. But he just had this kind of thing in his, in his system. And I think I grew up with that. So that's, that's part of that. So. Well, when we first, when uh, KA Colorado and uh, us in the Garavana Center first started talking about bringing him out, he, he said, I want to talk about climate change. I want to share my paintings. I want to debut a film. And I want to bring, shine a light on Laudato C. And I said, well, you've got an hour. Can you, can you do all that in an hour? And I, I think... He did that with a couple of minutes to spare. Lots to think about. Um, the you just keep driving home that we're all connected, and that's that's a really powerful message. And we're in one of the best places on the planet to do something to make sure that those connections bring life uh, to our common home. So please join me in thanking KA Colorado. couple of minutes and carry on the conversation, you're welcome to do so. Again, if you are a student here as part of the class, sign-ups are over there. Sam, wave, wave your hand. Okay. He'll point you in the right direction. Thanks, travels, and thanks for coming out today.